Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Maltrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member, and I'm honored to introduce our forum today. It's a conversation on family homelessness. It's part of our Health Equity Series, which is sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation. As the seasons change, and they did just a couple of days ago, and Cleveland starts to feel the first shades of winter, there is increased attention paid to those experiencing homelessness. Just a few days ago, a Cleveland.com article shared the plight of a shelter that houses many, mostly single men, during the winter months. But single men, while often the most talked about in the media, aren't the only ones experiencing homelessness. There's a growing population of homeless families, families comprised mostly of women and their children. At the 2018 State of the Schools Address, Cleveland Metropolitan School District CEO Eric Gordon indicated that approximately 5 to 7 percent of his students will experience homelessness during any given year. Last year, that number was exactly 2,882 children. Several initiatives are underway to address the lack of affordable housing, high eviction rates, and other factors that contribute to family homelessness while keeping the family structure intact. And we've assembled a panel of local leaders to discuss some of these efforts. Guiding our conversation today is IdeaStream reporter and producer Justin Glanville. Prior to his current role with IdeaStream, he was founder of Sidewalk, a revolving collaborative of writers, producers, and others working with nonprofits and foundations who want to better understand the needs and hopes of the people they serve. As an urban planner, he worked for Land Studio in Cleveland. As a journalist and writer, he worked for the, the Associated Press in New York, and his work has appeared on Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson, in the pages of The Plain Dealer, The Architect's Newspaper, and Planning Magazine. Justin Glanville, thank you for moderating. I turn it over to you. Great. Thank you, Dan. And thank you all for being here today. Happy November, right? And happy post-election. Um, a lot of my colleagues are really suffering today. Fortunately, I didn't have to cover the election too much last night. So, um, so um, yeah, so I'd like to start out, if I could, um, just a little bit on the personal side um, and ask all of our panelists. And we have a very full panel, um, which is great. So. Um, but I would ask if all the panelists could just try to be succinct. I won't say brief, but just succinct in your answers. Um, if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing what brought you to um, the work that you do around family homelessness. Is there any personal connection you have, whether it was that you experienced homelessness yourself or know someone who was homeless or just what brought you to the work? Um, and I'd like to start with Hazel Williams, who is joining us last minute. I, round of applause for... <laughs> Um, stepping in at the last minute, thank you so much. Um, would you would you mind uh, sharing? Your, and you are with the Northeast Ohio yes. Coalition for the Homeless. Would you mind sharing um, a little bit of your story of what brought you to this work? Okay, uh, two two and a half years ago, I found myself in a situation dealing with family members. I'm not going to go into detail about that, but I decided to take a different route instead of, you know, going to my mom's house. I decided to do something else, and so I decided, you know, I'm going to go to the shelter. Um, and being a female and being a veteran, uh, there are, well, I found out, uh, there's different criteria, different, the rules are different. Uh, especially being a female veteran because you do not have all the same places that the male veterans have. So I ended up being at the Westside Catholic Center, um, you know, because the VA paid for six beds there. So I was, you know, with the women with veterans. And one of the things that um, they had problems with was because I didn't have drug and alcohol 
or domestic violence or mental health issues, they really didn't know what to do with me. I am going to keep this brief. But um, so after attending, you know, like three employment classes, because I, I stay, you know, ready, I had a, um, a resume that was already done. So they really didn't know what to do with me as well. So that's when um, my VA advocate, Tony Johnson, I love her to death. <laughs> um, <laughs> she uh, asked me if I had some volunteer time, uh, time to volunteer. So of course I did, you know, because the only thing I was doing, I learned to crochet during that process. Um, and so that's how I ended up at NEOC. I started out as a working, you know, doing administrative work because I do have a background. Actually, my background is in accounting and business management. And when I get tired of accounting, I do executive assistant. So I had, the, <laughs> so I had that, you know, the background. And I am employable, but um, started out doing administrative. Uh, then went on to being over to donations, and then this year I was tasked with creating ten uh, workshops. So I created Design Met with Everybody and put them all on for this year. And that's great. I'd love yeah. to hear about those. Yeah, later. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And, and next, uh, Dr. Marsha Zashin um, is the Director of Project ACT for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Uh, Dr. Zashin, what, what brought you to this, this work? Yeah. It's an interesting story. I'll make it very, very quick. Um, I had been teaching at um, Cleveland State University, and I decided I was going to leave and do some consulting work. And I got a phone call from someone in Cleveland, Roberta Settles, and she said, you need to come here because we have a problem with a grant that we have, and it's a homeless children youth project. And I said, what? I don't know anything about that. And she said, but you're the right person for it, and I really want you to come here. I said, look, I'll come for two months, and I'll see. So I went to Cleveland for two months and 25 years later I'm still here. Uh, the thing that happened was I really fell in love with the project because we were able to do so many wonderful things for children and um, we have just kept growing and growing because when we started I was the only person involved with the program and now we have uh, a whole group of, of uh, life skill coaches over here that are part of our program so great thank you thank you we're Dr. still here yes yes good great next we have um reverend rich trickle he is with the city mission he's the ceo of the city mission um reverend trickle how about you what brought you to the city mission and this work uh, well i've been involved in working with uh, in an urban uh, context with uh, with men, women, and children in crisis for a long time. Originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I was at the Milwaukee Rescue Mission uh, for many years and had an opportunity to come to Cleveland over 15 years ago to serve at the city mission. And uh, I came with my uh, wife and, and uh, one daughter that was left in the home and uh, loved Cleveland and, and loved the city mission and am deeply passionate about making a difference in working with people that are, are in a significantly difficult situation. Great. Very succinct. Thank you. <laughs> okay, and um, last but not least, we have Abigail Stout, who is the managing attorney of the Housing Practice Group at the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. Um, so, Abby, if I may, um, how, what brought you to this work? You were sharing with me that you um, did some social work before you became an attorney. Did that inform your decision to? Uh, focus on homelessness as an attorney. It, it did. I, I wasn't an actual social worker. Um, I was doing sort of case management type work um, at a building in Seattle that provided uh, permanent <coughs> housing for formerly homeless women. And I was also working um, in the evenings at um, a shelter that provided emergency shelter to homeless women. Um, and I had gone into that thinking that I would do probably uh, you know, look into doing social work and um, found that a number of uh, the women that I worked with had some really high impact um, uh, from the, the help of attorneys in their lives. So one um, was able to increase the visitation that she um, uh, had with her children. 
Another um, was able to get Social Security benefits, which increased her income from $339 to over $1,000 a month. Um, and another was able to stay in the United States um, after fleeing an abusive husband from Mexico. And so I went to law school and um, really knew that public interest work was where my heart was. And uh, you know, working to secure housing for um, Cleveland, the Cleveland and the, the five communities we serve is really um, so connected to that work that I did in Seattle. Great, thank you, thank you all. Um, so I'd like to start just by talking a little bit about what is the situation right now with homelessness in Northeast Ohio. Um, this panel is particularly about family homelessness, so I'd like to touch on that, but just in you know, big picture, um, Hazel, I was on the uh, NEAC website uh, yesterday, and the figures I saw in there said that there's about 22,000 people in Cleveland at any given time, and, 22, and another 22,500 people in the county, in Cuyahoga County at any given time, who are homeless. What are some of the reasons that, that people become homeless? I think when you're dealing with the families, uh, abuse in the house, then you have the mental health. Um, I think those are the main ones when you, you're talking families. Mm -hmm. Because most of the ones, you know, if I'm at the shelter dealing with the women there, they was mainly they were there because of the boyfriend slash husband slash partner. Uh, situations with that you know I watched one female even though it's supposed to have been a safe space you know she eventually got back with him and then you started seeing her coming in you know with the black eyes and whatnot we had one that was a her husband was a veteran and he had her so programmed she would not accept any of uh, the help from the VA which could have got her housing got her in and out because she had like six or eight kids. It was disheartening, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very disheartening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and I'll be directing my questions to you all individually, but if anyone else wants to jump in um, on anything, please do. Um, so, um, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering if, if also, you know, there's been a lot of attention around wages in this country. And you know, I've been seeing a lot of reports lately that um, someone making minimum wage um, can afford a two-bedroom apartment exactly nowhere in this country. Like, there's, there's nowhere. There's nowhere that they could afford a two-bedroom apartment. Um, so are, are we seeing people become homeless? And this is for, for the whole panel. Are we seeing more people become homeless because of that, um, I guess, wage inequality or um, you know the failure of, of wages to keep up with expenses is that a factor I think um, when you look at a mom who is making minimum wages she would have to work approximately 73 hours a week in order to be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment and I think that's pretty impossible especially when you have children so um, it's very, very difficult when you don't have skills to make more than the minimum wage. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the work that we do at Legal Aid is um, we concentrate on our housing group on, on um, evictions and um, fighting evictions. And in, in that, um, in representing tenants who are faced with eviction, we really saw the impact of an, an attorney on um, the results of their eviction case. So we started exploring, you know, what is the impact of evictions in Cleveland? And, um, and we commissioned a study with Case Western Center on Poverty. And one of the findings that we found out of that was um, that, you know, we looked at why are people being evicted? One of the reasons is um, some sort of <coughs> economic difficulty, and it's often temporary. We also found that the average um, rent amount that people were um, spending was about $600, and um, many of the eviction cases, up to 80%, were based on non-payment of rent, um, and they maybe only owed about $1,200. <coughs> and what we found from this study was that the impact of having an eviction had all kinds of different um, effects, negative effects, and you're taking a disadvantaged um, person 
and family to begin with, and they're put into a more disadvantaged position. And that goes, um, can be quite prolonged. When we see things like shelter use, um, over the following two years, increased amongst those who have an eviction. Um, and uh, you know, it has all of these long-term effects, but it, does, it can go back to some sort of interruption on, um, in their economic stability. Right, something kind of that feels like a $1,200 problem becomes very quickly a much larger one. Much more significant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that $600 a month, that's the <laughs> average amount that, that folks are paying in Cleveland, you're finding? That's what we found okay. from the, the study that we did. Okay, which is not an insignificant amount of rent to be. It's paying. not, yeah. but it's also, there's um, the money that it takes to address homelessness. Right. Um, you know, if it's diverted to preventing an eviction or preventing homelessness, um, you know, we may, we may see better outcomes for our population. While we're talking about eviction, um, so I, yeah, I know a lot of your work at Legal Aid um, has to do with, with helping folks who are facing eviction. So how, can you give us some context there? How many eviction cases do we see per year in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County? And, and what recourse do people have if they are facing eviction? What are the actions that are available to them? Um, so there's approximately 9,000 evictions that are filed in the city of Cleveland and about um, 20,000 in the county of Cuyahoga. Um, the, you know, and looking at who's being evicted, it's about, uh, it's mostly women, about 78% women, uh, mostly African-Americans, about 77% African-American. Um, over half, about 60%, 65% are under the age of 40 and most of those um, households have children. So, and the average number is about two children. So we are seeing, you know, mm. we're seeing many, many families that are facing eviction. Um, and so, um, in terms of services, what's the, what the outcome? I mean, some um, end up directly into uh, a homeless shelter if they are evicted. Others um, may not directly go to a homeless shelter, but may have a period of instability following that that can last up to two years. And that was sort of the study that we commissioned with CASE. Um, we looked at the two years prior to the two years following an eviction, what the impact was. The impact was um, most uh, disadvantage disadvantageous to those who were in public housing, whose um, incomes often were much lower. So mm -hmm. um, in terms of other services, um, you know, Legal Aid has um, for a long time addressed evictions and representing t tenants, but the reality is our resources didn't allow us to do, um, have that impact on as many evictions and representation that, that we would like. So what we saw was um, most landlords are standing at court with a, a, a lawyer mm -hmm. and one to two percent of tenants were represented. Um, wow. So this year, just actually about a month ago, um, under the leadership of the City Council President Kevin Kelly and Council Member um, Tony Bracatelli, our City Council passed a right to counsel for tenants who are facing eviction. And yeah, we're, the fourth, we're the fourth city in the nation to pass such a, a law. It will be um, uh, implemented in uh, starting July 1st. And um, tenants who are at or below 100% of the federal poverty guidelines and have a child in the household um, will be eligible for uh, a lawyer to represent them on their whole case, not just the hearing, but the entire case. Great. And I, I want to ask you more about that as well. Um, yeah, so um, uh, Dr. Zashin, I think you, know, you and I were talking a little bit about how you know, a lot of times when people think about homelessness, they are not necessarily thinking about families. They're, they're maybe thinking about single people um, more. Um, and maybe they think of it as an adult issue. More, you know, they, the image of a homeless person that comes to mind is not a child, usually. Um, but in fact, you know, one of the inspirations for this panel is that at the State of the Schools address last year, I believe it was, a student from CMSD stood up and asked, what is the district doing for homeless kids in the district? Um, so um, could, you, could you paint a picture for us? How common is it for um, kids in, in CMSD to be homeless? And you know, how does homelessness affect their studies? Well, I think it's very um, difficult for students to be in a homeless situation. Um, 
we, we serve all students in the district from preschool through grade 12. And uh, we make sure where they go into a classroom, they have everything that they need to be successful there. Um, we're very fortunate that the Browns Foundation um, has given funds to the district to provide uniforms for the students. We are able to give every student a backpack filled with all the supplies that they need to uh, use in their classroom. And um, we have life skill coaches that are able to work and serve as advocates for our children. And we try to make the transition into school as easy for the parent as it is for the child. And we want them to become a part of the classroom just like any other child. Um, we do not make a big deal that this is a homeless child. Um, they're just like every other child in the classroom. So um, we have seen many, many children coming in to homelessness, going out of homelessness, coming back into homelessness. And it's really a very difficult situation because when you think about homelessness, you certainly don't think about children. And children are in the situation, but they haven't done anything wrong to be in that situation. So it's very difficult, you know, for them to know that sometimes they can, um, go home from school and not have dinner. Uh, the largest population that we have are children who are living in doubled up situations. And when you're living in a doubled up situation, you're actually um, working with a person who's been gracious enough to open up their home mm -hmm. and allow you to come in and stay there, but it's temporary. And the reason that it's temporary is they don't have to keep you. They're doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. So if things aren't going well and children are having a difficult time and the mom is having a difficult time, uh, the host family can say, look, you've been here long enough. You've got to leave. So um, the children, again, are uprooted and they have to go and stay in another um, place that may be a shelter if there's room but presently in Cleveland we don't have any shelters that really have any space so they are going to what's called an overflow shelter which is a very difficult place for children who have to go to school each day and when we have children in the overflow shelter they um, meet at Cosgrove at five o'clock in the evening and they are bused over to St. Francis um, Baptist Church. It's on um, Francis, and they don't have enough beds for everyone. So sometimes you may get a bed in the evening. Another night, you may be on the floor in a gymnasium. And it's really a very difficult, difficult situation uh, for families. Right now, in Cleveland, tonight, uh, there will be 29 families who are at the overflow shelter. And we have children at the Salvation Army. We have children at the Westside Catholic Center. We have children at the Haven House. I mean, we've got 79 people at the Haven House. Uh, and that is really, really a very difficult situation because all of these families have gone to coordinated intake. And in Cleveland now, the only way you can get into a shelter is by going to coordinated intake. The, uh, there's only one shelter in the city where we can send moms with children without going through coordinated intake is to the city missions, uh, Laura's home over on the west side. But other than that, a person has to go to coordinated intake and wait until they're told where they can go in the evening. And Dr. Zashin, you said um, it's somewhere between five and seven percent of CMSD students are home homeless. Yes, correct? we have okay. about seven percent that are homeless. And obviously, that is we you know we feel um, 
innately that that's a bad thing, but can you talk about what, what is, how does that affect kids as they you know, move through their education? What are the long-term impacts of being homeless? Well, I think that there is always going to be a long-term impact um, for children who have been homeless. It's a very difficult time for them. Um, it takes time for them to recover from a traumatic event. And we see so many children that have been involved uh, and have seen so many things at a very young age that they shouldn't have seen um, at such a young age. So this will always affect their development. And um, many of our children are functioning at a, a lower developmental rate than their, than their housed peers. So it's a very difficult situation, but we try in our schools to make sure that we are giving them the emotional support as well as academic support to help them um, get, get up to, to grade level. Um, and it really is hard for them because when some children are living in doubled up situations, they don't have any food from the time they leave school, from their lunch in school, until they come back to school the next morning and get breakfast. So um, there are lifelong um, factors that um, people suffer from being homeless. Thank you, okay. And then uh, Reverend Trickle, I, I told you all that half an hour is gonna fly by, right? <laughs> um, Reverend Trickle, um, you became CEO of the City Mission in 2004. And you know, the City Mission, I think, um, you know, one of the, your um, sort of uh, flagship um, programs is offering shelter for homeless people. You have a men's shelter, and you also have Laura's Home, Laura's home. Mm -hmm. which is a shelter for women <clears throat> with children. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you've seen um, change or not change in, in terms of homelessness in Northeast Ohio in your time here? and a little bit about what Laura's Home in particular does sure. since we're talking about family homelessness. Right, so the city mission, of course, has been in Cleveland for a very long time, uh, since uh, 1910, serving men, women, and children in crisis. Um, and as you mentioned, we have two facilities for men and for women. Laura's Home is located on the west side. We have 55 rooms, 166 beds in that building. Um, as of this morning, we have 145, 146 women and children in that building. Uh, the tragedy with Laura's home is every single day since uh, for the last five, six, seven years that our building has been completely full. And when I say completely full, what I mean is that um, every room is occupied and on a daily basis we receive calls. Um, it can be 30 calls, 50 calls, 60 calls, 80 calls from single women and moms with kids seeking shelter in our building. And we have to ask them to please call back. Uh, if you were to, to walk through our building and, and meet with the women that are in our building right now and ask them, tell me about, about your experience. How did you end up coming to Laura's home? What they would tell you, many of them, is I called every day for one month, two months, sometimes three months, every single day uh, to find a place. We're very, very concerned about this. Uh, the, the children that, that Marsha has mentioned that the Cleveland School District is telling us are homeless, you know, that represents anywhere from 800, 900 to 1,000 families. They're living doubled up in our city. Yeah. We don't even know about them. We've been talking about this for years at the city mission, and every single conversation I had, and I'm actually not exaggerating this, when I sit down with somebody, and I don't care if it's a civic leader, a philanthropic leader, a church leader, um, no matter whom that might be, and I say, are you aware that all of these children are homeless? We've got about 700, 800, 900 families in our city living doubled up, we don't even know about, no one is caring for them, no one is talking about them, no one is engaging them, and the response is always the same. I had no idea, I had no idea. In fact, the problem is we don't even recognize them or acknowledge them as homeless. They stand outside of the, of the, of the system, they, outs they stand outside of resources uh, because our priorities now are in an entirely different area. This is an absolute tragedy. We have about 75 kids in our building right now uh, we do assessments on those children. You ask about the impact. Uh, they are suffering significantly. They come to us impacted emotionally. They come to us way behind educationally. They are suffering from physical maladies at a greater level than all of their house counterparts. This is horrific circumstances. And with these children, um, the only way really to help them move forward, if we think about addressing the situation of 
poverty in our city, which, by the way, hasn't budged in decades, right? Uh, we remain as one of the most impoverished cities in the country for year after year after year after year. The key to moving that needle is to somehow engage this population more significantly and move them to some type of a stable living environment so these children have an opportunity to move forward. Okay, great. Um, I have one more kind of big question I'd like to ask before we turn it over to Q&A. Um, you know, the, um, homelessness is something that disproportionately affects people of color and in particular um, African Americans in our country and in our city. And I'm curious, you know, um, do you all see, and this is an open question for everyone, do you all see a role for your organizations or as part of your work to try to move the needle on that at all? You know, we are a very segregated um, region and city with a lot of divides. Um, I'm wondering if we're going to keep treating the symptoms, you know, unless we can really find a way to, to change what's underlying all of that. So I, I know that's a big question, but is that something that you all think about in your work? And I, again, I open that up to the whole panel. Well, I would say that we do look um, at our work through a race equity lens. Um, as I mentioned, the statistics of um, those who are being evicted earlier, um, you know, we're talking significantly about um, African-American women with children. Um, and so we, we do, and some of the work that we do um, is advocacy um, for the placement of new affordable housing to be in areas that have better, better resources, that they aren't um, always being placed in areas of segregation and, um, um, and other disadvantage. Um, so that's part of the work that we do. And um, you know, we are looking at this as you know, increasing mobility, increasing <coughs> options for um, families to move out of poverty. Yeah. Anyone else want to? Well, this, the whole area of social justice is very concerning to us. And, and as we're engaging our, um, our folks, uh, the men and women that are in our, in our, our building, what we are attempting to do, and, uh, and as an organization, we have a little bit more flexibility and freedom to do things because we're not, we're not constrained by some of the, the other things that uh, organizations have to deal with. But, but our whole goal is to help, help our folks create a path to, uh, to true independence, and, and that through housing, through employment, through, through stable living environments. And, and to do that, you have to push down a lot of barriers, uh, racial barriers, social barriers, all kinds of issues that, that, that are involved in working with with whomever it might be that, that is in the circumstance that brought them uh, to our door. And, and you know, when you think about this issue of poverty and homelessness in particular, um, it is incredibly complex. This is a multifaceted issue. Uh, the people that come to us are coming to us with a variety of, of concerns and, and issues that have to be cared for if that family is not going to just be housed somewhere forever, but actually equipped so they can move up and out of poverty into, into a stable life like the rest of us are enjoying. So certainly we're considering that all the time. I think um, we also have to look at the fact that many of the women who are homeless would really like to work. But because of certain circumstances, they're unable to uh, get a job. For example, if a parent has a child who has special needs, um, in particular, um, a child who may be autistic. That mom does not have the ability to go to work because if she does go to work, she will lose all of the benefits for her child. Mm -hmm. And that is really pitiful that if she makes one penny over the amount that she's allowed to make, she loses everything. Um, we have had some children that um, you know, suffer from autism, and moms who volunteer in schools, and they, they come every single day just as if they're an employee. So um, one family in particular, I said, well, why don't you let me help you find a job? She'd be a wonderful paraprofessional in an autistic classroom. She's a terrific mom. And she said, you know, if I get a job, I will lose all of my benefits for my child. And I just couldn't believe it. And you know what? It bothers me to this day 
that here's a woman who really wants to work. She goes, she volunteers every single day, just like an employee, and she can't take a job, she can't make money, because if she does, her son will lose all the benefits that she is getting for him. So I think that, you know, when you say people are lazy, um, not all of our homeless people are lazy. They just have other issues that they have to deal with, and many of them deal with their children. Yeah. Great. All right. Um, so uh, we are at midpoint here. I am Justin Glanville, a reporter producer at IdeaStream. And today at the City Club, we are listening to a forum on family homelessness uh, featuring Hazel Williams from the Northeast Ohio Coalition from, for the Homeless, uh, Abigail Stout from the managing attorney of the housing practice group at the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, Reverend Rich Trickle, CEO of the City Mission, and Dr. Marsha Zashin, Director of Project ACT for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. Uh, we welcome questions from everybody, uh, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you who are joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, Alyssa is on it here. Um, please tweet it to at the City Club. Um, that's at the City Club, um, three words all together and our staff will try to work it into the program. So holding the microphones today, our office and customer service coordinator, Tiffany France. Uh, okay, uh, maybe that's a little bit of a different change of plan here. And outreach manager, Julia Wong. I know that's Julia, okay. Um, so um, they'll come around with the mics, let them hold the mic as you ask your question. So yeah, maybe we have the first question, please. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Merle Johnson. I'm a member of the Ohio Board of Education. And one of the uh, major concerns um, with education is the chronic absenteeism. And I know that there have been some great efforts made by the Cleveland School District and other districts in Ohio. Uh, being assisted by the Cleveland Browns is really a wonderful, wonderful program. What are, uh, this is for, for Marsha, what are the kinds of things that are in place uh, to help our students who are homeless with getting to school so that they don't become a victim of, of chronic absenteeism, which would certainly affect their ability to pass? One of the things that um, we're able to do, um, where we have schools where we have um, a great number of homeless students, we have our life skill coaches uh, in the buildings. And when students are absent, they immediately get in touch with the mom. And so I don't think that our absences are as great as um, many of the others. For example, in many of our shelters, in order to stay there, you must send your children to school. So our absenteeism is not as great as it may be in the general you know, district. Uh, because we are working with shelters and they know that if a child isn't going to school or if a parent's not sending the child to school, um, they, the parent may be told, you'll have to leave because your child's not attending school. So it's, it's one of those things that if you're in a shelter, you really will have your children going to school. However, we don't have that many children in shelters all the time. Um, last year, for example, we only had 534 students that were in shelter. Our other students are living doubled up. And our life skill coaches try to engage with our parents uh, as frequently as possible to make sure that the children are in school. And the one thing that we try to emphasize with our parents is that Without education, your children will not be able to get a good job. Now that doesn't mean that every child has to go to college. It means that uh, they can go for training, they can um, you know, do post-secondary kinds of um, employment skills, but we know that children who um, do not graduate from high school are 4.5 times likely to become homeless during their lifetime. So it's very important that all of our children are going to graduate from high school 
and um, be successful in earning a diploma. And can I also mm -hmm. add a, a response to that as well? Another way to impact absenteeism is to um, represent tenants who are being evicted. One of the, um, uh, uh, the um, data points that we received from the Case Western report was that among families that were evicted, that absenteeism um, grew from 15% in children in grades um, 7 through 12 to 30%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's, a, there's absolutely um, a connection between being, an evic being evicted, housing instability, and um, school attendance. And so, you know, one way to address that is to, you know, lower the number of people who are being evicted and, and stabilize housing so people don't become homeless. Hello, my name is Belva Denmark-Tibbs and I serve on the board of St. Luke's Foundation and I commend your individual and collective efforts. However, um, the statistics are alarming. Um, so this is for me, I'm gonna ask a supply and demand question. We talk about the number of homeless in the city. I also know that there are many vacant buildings, apartments, et cetera. What efforts are being done to make those homes available to the homeless? Mm. Yeah, so the city mission launched an initiative about five years ago, it's called the New Horizons Program. Uh, we work in conjunction with the, um, with the Cuyahoga Land Bank doing exactly what you're talking about. We're, uh, we're securing abandoned homes, foreclosed homes. Uh, we look for a community partner, it's been individuals, it's been a business, it's been local churches. Um, together we rehab that home. Um, we have families in Laura's home, of course, that we work with. We prepare that family for home ownership. Uh, uh, we help them transition into the home, that mom and her child. She has employment. Uh, she's in a home now. We provide extensive case management services while, while she's in that home, uh, normally up to one to two, almost three years. And then as that mom is stable in that home, stable in employment, we actually turn the title of that home over to that mom. So our, our, our transition, um, women are coming to us homeless. Um, their house in the home, and then of course the end result is home ownership. This is significant. You talk about a life-changing project, a, a transformational project. That's it. Uh, in order to escalate that project and to do more with that project, of course, we need not only more community partners, uh, but I'll tell you something else. We need we need transitional living facilities in our town. You probably know that funding has been readjusted over the years. We've lost probably 500 beds. Most transitional living facilities are gone. So when you, you take a, a woman, a, a mom that has been battling homelessness, uh, she, she gets the, the necessary help that she, she requires to get employment. Uh, in, our, in our building, that employment translates to tw 10 to $12 an hour initially, not enough to support a home, right. not meaning she can't grow her income, but she needs time. Right. She needs time to do that, but where is that mom supposed to go? So we're doing exactly what you're talking about, but we certainly need much more engagement, many more partners, and a lot more resources to escalate that project. Uh, this actually is a question, not just for everybody in this room. It's also for all the people streaming right now and watch this video in the future. This is what City Clubs is about. Preserve the ideas, going for the solutions to strengthen our community. For all these panelists here, they offer us lots of information. Let me give you a couple more examples. How our public policies are actually creating homeless people. Doesn't matter family or singles, or even poor children in this case. You have a pregnant women right now, they already maybe have children, other children or not, or maybe this is the first baby. However, we only have a very little portions of uh, resources to dedicate to homeless families. So, mostly when they try to get into a shelter, they cannot stay in the car forever and the car can be towed already. So, in this case, they will get a rejection saying, there's no beds available, even no beds available in the overflow family shelter. So what should they do? Lots of these mothers, even right now, we have more single fathers start doing the same thing. They will keep their children with somebody else. They will go into a shelter system as a single adult. So they cannot really have any advantage 
as the people already stay in the family shelter. Doesn't matter Laura's home, family promise, or Zoma George run by Salvation Army, especially with that Catholic center. That's the Catholic of our shelters. Now, the situation would be you are pregnant, but since they know you are homeless, you don't have a children with you, so they definitely wouldn't let you go into family shelter to begin with, since there's no bed. Our tragedy also happens when these babies are born, they are taken away automatically. These mothers do not really know the legal part of it. They thought if they go to a single adult family shelters, they will be able to get help. Once the baby is born, she and other children can go to a family shelter. No, that's not the case. That actually complicated the whole situation even worse because now your newborn baby is not even under your custody at all. Okay, so so I, I, the question will be, yesterday was election day. When have we seen any public policy and any ballet for us to raise a voice about these situations? If this day doesn't come, we cannot solve the problem easily. Okay. That's my question. When? When will it come? Thank you. Okay, anyone? <laughs> anyone want to take that? Yeah. <laughs> that's, not really, that's not really, I mean, I, I get it, Lou, but unfortunately that's not our issue. Our issue is to work within, you know, the resources that we have, and, and certainly there needs to be some, some changes in policy, but, but I'll tell you what, the government is not going to solve this problem. This is a societal problem. This is a Cleveland problem. Uh, and together, I think we could make a bigger impact if we would actually put our heads together. We, there, there aren't enough beds. There's not enough resources right now. But there are a lot of circumstances. We just read an article in the paper not that long ago, right? Metanoia has limited space. They tried to move into a church, and the church wanted to open their building, and they were told no by, uh, by the county. Well, well that's got to change. So there are opportunities, but we need to connect as a city, as a, as a group of men and women. Uh, there's a large faith community here in our town that could open their doors, too. There's just a lot more that we need to do, but I think we need to stop thinking about what is a government going to do to solve a problem, it's our problem, and I think if we work together, we could certainly make a bigger impact. You know, hey, can I jump in here and ask, you know, Hazel, you know, and I, this is because you were gracious enough to step in at the last moment, so I didn't get to get to know you as well beforehand, but um, as part of your work, um, I'm thinking about peer-to-peer -peer and mentoring and sort of um, people who have been homeless talking to each other, is that, is that a part of what you do at the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless, or does that happen where folks who have been homeless are able to kind of help each other out? No, it's not what we do in uh, NEAC, but um, it's what we did while we were at the shelter. I'm not one to use that word friend loosely, but I met some while I was there. We encouraged each other while we were there, and you know, since this is a family <coughs> panel, it was myself and a couple of other veterans that helped the kids um, with the homework because I, you know, I have children myself. They're just like super grown, but I have nieces <laughs> and nephews. Super grown. So I were there, you know, I've always been there with them. So, you know, while I'm at the shelter, I'm a stickler on education. Um, so I, I was the one that asked about homework. Mm. I was the one that helped with homework. I was also the one that got in trouble with them on Christmas from running through the hall with the toys. So um, I was also the one that kind of, there was a situation that was heartbreaking. A young, one of the kids, two of the kids were walking to school. The little boy, he was nine, eight or nine, uh, van stopped. Man handed him some money. He was about to get in the van. A veteran happened, you know, from the shelter, happened to, you know, driving down the street and saw what was going on, made a U-turn and stopped it. The mom was mad at the veteran for interfering with her child. Mm. Um, so it was a hands-on, you know, in the evenings. It was, it was a situation. The, the child had no clue what almost happened. You know, for the next three days, he was talking about the money he almost had. You know, uh, yeah. it's a mark breaking things that took place. Yeah. Uh, but we were there for them. Even now, you know, we celebrate 
the small things in life. You know, I get a call, hey, I just got a job. Okay, let's go out to eat. Let me call up the rest of the crew and mm -hmm. let's go out to eat. You know, we do keep each other encouraged. Uh, so that's where the network, you know, continues on, mm. even life after the shelter. Right. Thank you. Okay. Hi. Thank you for your passion for this population of people. Um, my question stems from being an educator for t about 20 years, um, currently transitioning into mental health. Um, population that I work with is 17 through 25 and I've noticed that they are very accustomed to homelessness. Um, several have described going in and out of homeless shelters um, as children whether it be um, aging out or a number of different reasons and the question I have is are we providing any interventions or devising any transitional plans for the children transitioning from homelessness while school aged into young adulthood because it continues to perpetuate and it's even worse because if they don't have children they almost have no supports in place to find housing. And I think you're, you're kind of referring to um, it's, it's sometimes you're bumped further up the list for housing if you do have children. So for single folks, it may be especially hard, but they're coming from a family homelessness situation, right? I think that there um, are many unaccompanied um, young people. Um, you're mentioning 17 to 20 to 25. Uh, we see with... Um, the students that we deal with, children that are 15, 16, uh, 17, they cannot get into a shelter because they are underage. And that is a very, very difficult issue for our program because we really don't have a place to send them until they're 18 years old. So we try to see if, uh, Maybe there is a relative or someone who might be able to take them in. Many times, um, the kids that you're talking about and our kids that are teenagers, um, unfortunately, will go and stay with people who really don't have their best interest at heart. And they're there because um, they may be providing that person with uh, favors, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, a very, it's very difficult for our young teenagers, especially between the ages of 15 and 18, to find places that are appropriate for them to stay. And we have a crisis uh, social worker who's really doing a very good job at making sure that we find appropriate places for our younger students and making sure that we have contact with them on a daily basis. We get phone calls in the middle of the night on the weekends from some of our unaccompanied youth as to all of a sudden I have no place to stay. Uh, I was staying someplace and they kicked me out. Now what am I supposed to do? So um, these are issues. They're very, very big issues uh, within the city about what do we do with these unaccompanied youth that have not reached the age of 18. Okay, I probably have time for one more question, I'm thinking, here, okay. Hi, uh, my name is Molly Martin and I work with NEAC, the Northeast Ohio Homeless Coalition. Um, I really appreciate that this conversation is happening because I think that something that's really important about the issue of family homelessness is the invisibility of the issue. Um, and my question is more systematic in nature because I think when you think about the cause and effect of the problem, I think something that Hazel pointed out about her experience of homelessness is that the system is kind of set up so that someone has to be in an emergency situation in order to qualify for benefits. And I'm wondering if when we think about the root cause of family homelessness, I think that 
it should be brought to the attention that families um, include parents who care a lot about their children. And I think that in order, when you have a system that's set up to be in an emergency situation, um, housing stability becomes a reason a parent would not enter the system because they would be afraid of losing custody of their children. Um, so when we think about the invisibility of the issue, do you think that says something about the root cause of the problem and maybe housing affordability and that a lot of families aren't willing to put themselves in a public open situation of crisis um, as a root cause of the problem and that does that say something about our system at large that we have to counterproductively be in an emergency situation in order to get services and would that then shed light on the fact that maybe affordable housing is the reason that um, families are experiencing homelessness. I know that we've highlighted the importance of living wage employment and the long-term effects of homelessness on children specifically and if people are evicted, but I wonder if um, something related to affordable housing is, and, is one and of the key things. Yeah, that's such a great question. And Abby, I remember you, you talking about that a little bit when we spoke on the phone, that the root issue here is affordable housing. Yeah, we do have a lack of affordable housing. I mean. Um, and I don't have the statistic off the top of my head, but way too many people are paying more than 50% of their monthly income uh, towards their housing. And uh, they really should be paying more like 30%. So, I mean, I think it's a lack of affordable housing. And, you know, we're, so we come in when someone's being evicted. And in a lot of the conversations we have, we're asked, well, you know, aren't there resources that you can help um, get to the tenants before the eviction is filed? or before the three-day notice is filed. And, and so there, I mean, it's like how, we do need to reach further and further back in the process to really, really stabilize families. So it's not that they're entitled to an attorney when the eviction has been filed, but that way before that, there was a place for people to go to get some short-term rental assistance or to get some financial counseling in the meantime in order to better manage their money in order to um, pay the rent on time, in order to avoid homelessness. Um, so I, you know, I think we do need to look way back, but I think we don't have the resources in, to provide that, and we also just don't have a, a decent supply of affordable housing. So. And I just wanted to add one quick thing. As a veteran, there are resources out there uh, before the three-day notice. Um, depending on your discharge, SSBF, you have, I forget what it stands for, uh, the Veteran Service Commission. You can always go, you know, laid on mortgage, they help with mortgage, utilities, and rental assistance. V Veteran Service Commission also, you know, take you through those financial classes. But, it, yeah, so the resources are there for veterans. For veterans. There's some. There are limited pots, but it is so limited, um, and it really needs to be much broader available. All right. Um, well, so this has been such a great panel. I know I have found it extremely thought-provoking. Thank you all so much for being on the panel. It's been a great conversation. I'm going to turn it over to Dan Malthrop. Thank you very much, Justin Glanville. Today at the City Club, we have been with a forum on family homelessness featuring uh, Abby Stout, Managing Attorney of the Housing Practice Group at L the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, Hazel Williams with the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless, Reverend Rich Trickle, CEO of the City Mission, and Dr. Marsha Zashin, Director of Project ACT for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Justin Glanville of IdeaStream was our moderator. Our forum today is part of our Health Equity Series sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation. Community partners on our program today. Thank you, St. Luke's Foundation, that's right, you can do that. Uh, community partners for our forum today include the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland and the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless. We have representatives from all of our partners and sponsoring organizations today we, with us today, and we appreciate your support of City Club programming. We also welcome guests at tables hosted by the City Mission, the City of Cleveland Department of Community Development, the Community West Foundation, Falls Communications, Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry, and Project ACT, as well as those joining us today as part of the St. Luke's Foundation's Resident Leader Scholarship, designed to deepen community understanding of how to evaluate and implement policies and initiatives that help close the health equity gap. We are happy to have all of you with us today. That brings us to the end. 
Thank you so much, Justin and panelists. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. And special thanks to City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. Thank you so much. Have a great day. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.